Boat Trader, America's largest boating marketplace, offering easy financing and over 100,000 boat listings to choose from. Sell, find, and finance new or used boats on America's largest boating marketplace. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name, my name. is... <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Michael Sabbath is an author of the book, The Honorable Hunter an instructor training manual on how to honorably and persuasively defend and promote hunting. Honestly, as I got into this conversation, I got more and more, I guess, intimidated is the right word. Michael is a trial lawyer that has devoted the last several years of his life to rhetoric and deconstructing arguments as it relates to hunting and non-hunting. Wow, what a topic. And just sit back, relax, and absorb everything Michael has to offer. And I can guarantee you this is not the last time that Michael will be on this podcast. The audience understands this. You wrote a book called The Honorable Hunter, an instructor training manual. Correct? That is correct. Mike? Michael, Michael. Let me make sure I'm addressing you correctly. Michael is perhaps historically preferable. Um, but so why did I write it? Um, why did I write the book? I wrote the book as a consequence of spending about seven years developing an expertise or, or I hope, an expertise, some knowledge, some wisdom uh, of, about the, the rhetoric of hunting. Uh, we had some uh, legislative proposals in Colorado in the year 2012, and I concluded that the shooting community, the hunting community, was not uh, crafting the best arguments to defeat the legislation, which we did not do, uh, 
and to advance hunting and to advance shooting. Now, I'm a lawyer, and coincidentally, I had crafted a continuing legal education okay. program in the late, uh, in the mid 1990s. Uh, on on the ethics of rhetoric, that is to say, the ethical aspects and unethical aspects of using words, using arguments. And my in, in originally, it was intended for lawyers on how they craft arguments to advance their case and how they can uh, analyze uh, arguments to refute an opponent's case. Okay, so. It occurred to me in about 2012, 2013, that those same skills right. are applicable to the hunting community, the hunting community being merely a subset of humanity. Uh, and um, uh, I, I was uh, just beginning to learn about hunting. I'm not much of a hunter, but I had been writing for uh, many gun magazines, very superlative uh, gun magazines, hunting magazines, shooting magazines, sports of fields, sporting classics, clay shooting USA, the double gun journal, the Dallas Safari clubs of Michael. Um, a, a vast array of topics, Rob. Um, uh, hunting. Well, yes, yes, there were hunting articles. Uh, I, I well, I, I am a hunter, but I would. Okay, let me clarify. I have gone hunting, but I'm not a an experienced hunter, such as your friend uh, Chris Dorsey, uh, or <laughs> or or my friend um, uh, Jim Shockey. Yes, sir. Who who who? By the way if I may be so presumptuous, wrote a, a stunning, a stunning accolade for my book. I'm very honored. I have gone hunting a few times. I've gone on a, a safari with Chris Dorsey or his, his team in South Africa. And uh, I, in 2016, I went hunting in Namibia uh, as a guest of uh, my dear friend, Deneen, Van de Vesthuizen, yeah, um, because she had invited me to give two lectures to the Namibia Professional Hunters Association in, in that month in November, and I've hunted, uh, for example, uh, some pronghorn in northern Colorado. But that was part of, of volunteering with a wonderful organization titled named Outdoor Buddies, which offers hunting opportunities for severely disabled human beings it, it, it just brings tears to your uh, tears to your eyes uh heartbreaking and, and i've done a fair amount of wing shooting um so perhaps i should modify my uh my comment you first let's before we continue any further michael sabbath please introduce yourself we've heard that you're a, a reformed lawyer or still a lawyer Oh, that's a sensitive topic, my friend. <laughs> it's uh, being a lawyer is like uh, Luca Brazzi. Uh, you hate him until you need him. Um, but uh, I, I am towards the end of my legal career, and I am trying to 
devote extensive time and energy writing books such as the one I just wrote, uh, which is has a subtitle, uh, How to Honorably and Persuasively Defend and Promote Hunting. And I do a lot of working with uh, youth, uh, young hunters, young shooters, uh, particularly in Texas. And as you would uh, can see in the book, I've I've interviewed many, many young hunters, and they have given me marvelous, marvelous insights into how they want to be taught, what, is, what are effective teaching techniques for them, mm-hmm. what inspires them to be moral, ethical hunters, uh, how they make corrections in their own lives, and, and, and frankly, how hunting has made them better people, how they have grown and become more moral as a consequence of hunting. You a question. Do you believe yeah. that, um, I, I, I say a lot, um, but I don't often um, ask other people. Yes. Do you believe that hunting develops the innate characteristics that make people better citizens? You know, uh, uh, Rob, uh, Robert, whatever you prefer. Robert, my mother is the only person who calls me Robert when she's mad at me. So, Robbie or Rob, whatever you want, but not well, Robert. Don't conf- <laughs> don't confuse me with your mother. Uh, I I I'm a big, uh, uh, perhaps a rhetoric bore when it comes to words, and what. I might find objectionable in the, your question to me is the word innate. Uh, I believe that hunting can build greater moral character and, um, and, and it can create better citizens by virtue of the fact that hunting teaches on a very broad level about life and death. It teaches about preparation. It teaches about personal responsibility. It teaches about respect. If you are an ethical, honorable hunter, if you are not, then I don't suppose it advances anything virtuous in in the individual. But the, the most fundamental theme of my book, and it has resonated with many people that I respect, and you know many of them. Uh, my 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 foundational theme is that the best way that we people in the hunting community—I consider myself a part of the hunting community—the mm-hmm. best way that we can instill the virtues and values of hunting and make people better and have them become lifelong hunters, or at least lifelong advocates of hunters, even if they don't hunt, is to show the link, to develop the link between hunting and moral character. If we can make youngsters stronger people, more confident people, more competent people, If we can give them the words to defend hunting Mm -hmm. and to deconstruct 
and dissect the anti-hunting attacks, then we can create the greatest probability of, of preserving hunting and making it thoroughly a, uh, a virtuous uh, activity, a virtuous pastime that teaches moral character and also, equally as important, conserves the animals, uh, enables healthy animal populations to thrive. Absolutely. And generate resources for people who, uh, who deserve the resources. And I, I've written extensively about that in my book and in some of my articles. You know, it's like the so-called trophy hunting and the impact it has on very rural communities in Southern Africa, the African hunting nations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I can, you know, go into that if you ask me some pointed questions about it. Um, but does does that give you an answer, Robbie? Yeah, um, Michael. I let me ask just to set the context a little bit. Do you partake in any social media yourself at this stage in your career? I I do, but I am inept, and I. I That's a fair I, statement. <laughs> And I am seeking guidance from people, perhaps even yourself, on how to do better. Um, if you are an ept right now, media is a very, very interesting beast in that it's a necessity yes. today. And this is un unfortunate evil in that it takes away time from the things that matter. But come the 21st century billboard, in terms of rhetoric, in terms of perceptions, in terms of narrative. Yes, and absolutely. No question about it. We need, to, we need to, you know, step up in that arena. Well, let me ask this question of you. Do you think hunting has a PR problem, Michael? Hunting has a PR problem. I, I, that, that is a good question. I hope that you appreciate that it has multiple levels. To it, of course, I, I I've read Aristotle's rhetoric, many, uh, his his masterwork, many times. Rhetoric, uh, a single time, just FYI. Um, Maybe I should. It, it's it's uh, if you ever need something to put you to sleep late at night, <laughs> start reading, and um, and 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 one of the key themes that he's developed and this is twenty five hundred years ago is who's your audience? Who is your audience? Hunting does not have a public relations problem to, with, with hunters as the audience. Very true. Very true. With the audience. But I believe, and I say this with caution and not with joy, Robbie, that hunting has a PR problem in terms of the larger community, the non-hunting community. Correct. And um, I can give you, to me, the, the, the quintessential recent example is the Cecil the Lion uh, situation, and likely many in your audience, if not all, are familiar with that, uh, with that incident of uh, Walter Palmer, a dentist from somewhere up in northern the United States shooting Cecil the lion 
uh, a much beloved lion that nobody ever heard of, other than a few people sipping lattes in Northern Europe, um, and uh, and and was received that the killing of the lion was received with uh, intergalactic indifference by the African community, but was exploited for raising millions of dollars uh, for um, not anti-hunting organizations. I have uh, used that Cecil example, and when I reference it, I, you know, um, I hope that your audience knows what I'm talking about. If, yeah, if sure you think do. I don't, I can go into greater detail. They do. Okay. Um, to me, Cecil the Lion should have been a rhetorical triumph for hunters. It should have been a, a public relations triumph for hunters. It could have focused on the, the need for people of wealth or what appears to be wealth. I mean, Walter Palmer may have been saving his lunch money ever since he was four years old to, to finance that trip to the Hwange uh, Park in Zimbabwe. Uh, and by the way, I gave a lecture in Geneva, Switzerland in uh, March of what was last year, 2020? 2020. And in that, um, at that lecture, I met the director of the environment from Zimbabwe, a remarkable man, a very bright, mm -hmm. capable man, who informed... Did you meet Fulton? I did. I met somebody there named Fulton, but this was... I did meet someone named Fulton, yes. but, but Zimbabwe director of, of wildlife parks. Th well, this was a different man. Okay. Uh, um, so maybe I have the title incorrect. But he informed me that not even, not even a single penny raised by all these organizations leeching off uh, Cecil were directed to or donated to lion conservation. Not even a penny. They may have gone to buying expensive Bordeaux wines at conferences, but nothing went to conserve or save the lions. Um, there's one image in my mind. I hope this is not viewed as a digression. One image in my mind that, in my opinion, shows the pathology, the, the diseased character of some of these anti-hunters. It was a photograph of a middle-aged white woman with a billboard or poster uh, hung around from her neck, which said, I am Cecil. And what she was doing was playing on the Islamic slaughter of the Charlie Hebdo workers in Paris. And thus the, the phrase was born, Je suis Charlie, which in theory was showing public support for these Charlie Hebdo workers. Mm -hmm. And uh, this despicable woman was making a moral equivalence between killing a 12-year-old lion that probably had another year or two only to live 
and the slaughter of 12 human beings mm-hmm. and that she was identifying as the victim. So that should have been used by the hunting community uh, as a launching pad to show the kind of person that opposed Cecil, mm-hmm. the kind of person that creates what you might call, I might call, a public relations problem. Mm-hmm. I do believe, I hope that uh, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of staying on topic here, Robbie. I, I do believe that, that the greatest failure of the hunting community is, is not linking hunting to the moral aspects of the consequences of hunting and not being aggressive rather being timid uh, again walter palmer with cecil was is viewed as rich well fine he's rich how many poor people help conservation mm-hmm. how many um very good point how many poor people i mean a- another example for me is the 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 public relations you could call it a disaster but the public relations uh, narrative when the Dallas Safari Club auctioned off a a hunt for rhino the hunt black rhino in, in Namibia in Namibia in 2013 uh, they began and the attacks on on uh, the the the, the the directors and so on of the Dallas Safari Club were were, vin- were vicious, mm-hmm. were venomous, um, and I spoke to to Ben, uh, the, the who then the president of the Dallas Safari Club. In fact, I was at the banquet in I think it was January 2014 when the auction actually occurred, and I was mm-hmm. five tables away from Corey Knowlton. Mm-hmm. Who submitted the winning bid? Mm-hmm. But but the the Dallas Safari Club, all of them were very timid in fighting. I think it was a lady named Angela Oxley, who she called those people. She called those people who supported the hunt of the black rhino. She called them barbaric, barbaric. Okay, fine. Robbie, I'm a lawyer, and I have learned over many decades that you don't argue with somebody whose living depends upon disagreeing with you. Right. You're not, you're not going to get anywhere. Right. But we didn't handle the rhetoric. She used the word, and we let it slide, and we became defensive. In that scenario, let's turn this, let's turn this example into... Sabbath's Sabbath's legal mind. Your the the fact that you've been thinking about rhetoric for seven years now. Well, okay. Your tactic. Let's use that example. What would have been your tactic in response? Okay, very good question. It's a good question. I would have had a a multi pronged response. These are complicated issues. They're complicated. And we have to find strategies, we in the hunting community, 
have to find strategies, rhetorical strategies, public relations strategies to deal with complex issues Mm -hmm. that have reason, that have logic, that have emotion. So, number one, I would have had, I would have responded very aggressively, focusing on that word barbaric. Let us, if she believes it's barbaric, fine. But let us then analyze, Robbie, what she does not believe is barbaric. Mm. Only then can we determine the intellectual and moral content of an argument. Only then can we deconstruct and find the core, the moral core of an argument. So she considered killing that rhino barbaric. What she did not consider barbaric, and this is not the totality of it, Robbie, she did not consider it barbaric that that specific rhino had already killed five younger rhinos. That she did not consider barbaric. She did not consider it barbaric that by by prohibiting that hunt, poaching would increase dramatically because a huge amount of money raised by the auction went to anti-poaching. She did not consider it barbaric that it would have terminated a water treatment project for small villages. Mm-hmm. Now, here's a woman who's living in Dallas, uh, no doubt middle class, upper middle class, with $10 lattes, including a tip, and depriving people who are subsisting on $50 a month, $50 a week, perhaps. That she didn't consider barbaric. She didn't consider it barbaric that she would be depriving money Mm. to schools in these small villages. So, in summary, I would have attacked like a panzer division her morality. I would have attacked the fact that wealthy white people in Europe, in the United States, in Dallas, part of the United States, of course, uh, are depriving black children and black families of a better life. Yep. Um, I would have attacked the morality of those people that opposed the hunt. I, I, I read a lot. Question, yes, Mike, before ahead. you continue. Yes. Would you have suggested a, an open and honest response that is, yes, we are going to kill that rhino? Is that the question? Well, no, I want to, is that your question? Would you, have, would you have stated in that response in terms of morality? Because the response back in my brain, I'm just working through it in my brain, right? The thing that they're going to, I constantly think, what are they going to say back to me if I say X? That's an, I say Y. And, and you should. That is proper. The, the thing that they would respond to is that no matter, it doesn't matter you questioning my morals, your morals are in question because you're still killing that animal. Yes. Just 
cut it off at its head and say, yes, you're absolutely right. Animal, and if we get an opportunity, we were going to kill that animal. I'm not sure I understand, Robbie, what you're asking me. When you, when, if you're asking me, should there be an open and honest debate, open is fine, honest, who, does, who determines what's honest, but... I'm trying to... Maybe it's not a question, it's more part of the conversation here, in that the honesty aspect of hunting, i.e. just fessing up and saying, yes, we kill. Okay. Let's move on. Let's talk about the consequence of the action of the action that you find immoral. I can't change your mind about that, but I could change your mind about the consequences of that action. Okay. Those are several questions. I think they're all, no, 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 uh, truly. I I think they're all excellent. I think they're all excellent. I, I make a few points. I make a few points. Um, and, and you realize your audience realizes that I'm responding quickly, and 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 uh, I, I like to think things through uh, to a neurotic level. So uh, please forgive me if if my my thoughts are not absolutely at concert pitch. But a couple of thoughts come to mind. Having an open, honest conversation is virtuous and it is good, but it takes skill. It takes skill, and um, one should not get into a conversation, one should not get into a debate, unless one has the skill to proceed effectively and persuasively. Now, part of that, uh, assessing how to proceed, is assessing your audience. If you want to have an open, honest discussion with somebody, that you think is receptive to it, then that is the highest form of the discussion. Mm-hmm. And, and that is excellent. And I'm going to give you an example in just a moment. It is one of the most powerful examples I have experienced. And it's in detail in my book. Mm-hmm. It's in detail in my book. But if it's somebody, again, whose living depends on disagreeing with you or destroying you, right. then you, then you have to go for the jugular. You have to be able to assert the skill to destroy the opponent. And very few people, very few people have that skill. Very few. And so it's best to avoid that rather than be embarrassed. If you go into a discussion, if you go into a debate with the mindset, I'll tell my side of the story, you tell yours, and the audience will decide then you have already lost. You will not win. And for us hunters, I, I would prefer that we do not lose debates. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to tell you a story. And it ha- evidently, you know Deneen and her husband, Geisbert. So, and it, this occurred at her ranch um, uh, in, in, in the, the Veronica Ranch, not too far from Windhook. I was giving the lectures at Windhook. Um, at, at, the, at, the, at her lodge, at that moment, there were about 25 glider pilots. Who would know that Namibia, at that time of the year, had the best air for glider planes in the world? 
Who would know that? Right. And and uh, Geisbert and, and Deneen, to their infinite credit, had built an entire airfield with uh, headquarters and, and computers and everything. And there were uh, pilots from all over Europe, I think one even from South America and so forth. One of the pilots, a very elegant man, an elegant man, a surgeon from Poland, approached me coincidentally the last evening that I was there, planning to be there, and asked what I was going to talk about in my lectures. Now, the exciting aspect, and, uh, and it may be difficult for me to convey in mere words how extraordinary this experience was, but I and Geisbert actually saw the day before two black rhinos, including a, two massive male black rhino, one of which was selected for the auction Dallas Safari in 2017, but it was not a public auction. Gotcha. And he asked me, what am I going to talk about? And I decided to test out my arguments on him. And I tried to structure it in a logical way to be the most persuasive. Mm -hmm. And if there's one, one lesson that I could share most emphatically with your audience, it is this one that the key to persuasion is to build upon what your audience already believes, not to show how you are different, but how you are the same. Now, any, like good, any good trial lawyer knows that, whether the lawyer is appealing to a judge or appealing to a jury, it wants to, that lawyer wants to appeal to the the thinking, the biases, the prejudices, the mindset, the worldview. And that is the art of persuasion. And so I, I said, I posed questions to this, again, I emphasize an elegant man, an intelligent guy. I said, I, I asked him questions that I wanted to be, in essence, zero sum, zero sum, either yes or no, no, uh, no extenuations, no contextualization. Do you believe this or do you believe that? A or B? Mm -hmm. So do you want more black rhinos? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Do you want to have better water treatment plants for the people living around you here? Absolutely. Going. Yeah. Do, do you want poaching reduced. Absolutely. I was drawing out his values. You see what I mean? Yep, yep. And I was showing incrementally how hunting that rhino was consistent and in harmony with his values. And we went through it. It was not a lengthy discussion, 15, sure. 15 minutes. And he looked at me, and, and he spoke very softly, very deliberately, and he said, Michael, I am not a hunter. I am, a, uh, I am a, against hunting. But one should have an open mind. I would support that hunt. And there you go, Robbie. There we go. There you go. 
So the PR issue it takes skill. It takes thought. You have to be informed. Um, I, I believe, uh, this may be an aside or a digression, I believe that the overwhelming percentage of people are decent people and would respect hunting of any sort if it were explained properly, if it were explained in terms of consequences and morality. Mm-hmm. And I've had these discussions. I did a, had a, a presentation where I talked to a focus group that was originally brought together by the National Rifle Association, some guy, um, to, to get views on hunting. And I spoke to a group. It was 10 or 11 people, mostly females. Um, who were opposed to hunting, and yet when I finished explaining, everyone without exception said they would have supported that black rhino hunt. I have quoted in my book examples of, um, this is Texas, Texas wildlife officers talking to anti-hunters, very aggressive, aggressive anti-hunters. But this one woman in particular, explaining what it's like for animals in the wild. This ain't Bambi, you know what I mean? This is not like a Russo painting, an Honoré Russo painting, with the lion resting on the veldt with a gemsbuck waiting for non-GMO, locally sourced, gluten-free broccoli. You know what I'm saying? Um. The wild is a rough neighborhood. It's rough. And and this lady patiently explained, and she uses an example of a, uh, of, of, a, of a deer that was injured, and it was being consumed by fire ants, going into its mouth, going into its nose, going into its eyes. Now, this is real life. You see what I mean, Robbie? Mm-hmm. This, is the, this is real life. And each of those aggressive anti-hunters said, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. I would now hunt. Mm-hmm. So, so, so PR, um, to the extent that the hunting industry has a PR problem, I blame them for it. They spend millions and millions of dollars on public relations firms. I wish it all went to me, but it hasn't. And, um, and I think they can do better. I think we can all do better, right? We can always, always do better. And we can always learn things that we've purposely put in, into our philosophy of blood origins. If you had asked me, Robbie, what is at its core, your philosophy? Yes. And I read it. I, I, I did come prepared for this. Yes. Well, you didn't realize this was this this is this podcast is not about me. It's not about blood origins. It's about our guests and Should over the so. moon in terms of thus far. Uh, and I guess I don't know. Philosophy may be the wrong terminology here, Mike. And I apologize because you seem to be a very much a a word guy. But approach maybe approach is a better term. Our approach to people is very gentlemanly. 
We've been called gentlemanly in our approach. We don't come out of the gates in an, in an attack type format, right? We come out very respectfully. The very middle ground, very gray, as a almost a, a bridge to that anti-hunter that is calling us an MFA, right? Yeah. Especially in social media context where you really can't worry and you're just trying to figure out how do you get something out of this exchange between you and a keyboard warrior. Correct. That would be an approach that you would advocate for in certain circumstances. Well, absolutely. But you have addressed several distinct issues, several distinct issues. Number one, coming out of the gates, being gentlemanly and so on. This, by the way, I've never heard. I've never been, I've never heard anybody call a hunter being gentlemanly in terms of, or ladylike, in terms of his, her, their approach to anti-hunters. I'm not disagreeing. I said, I'm just saying, never heard of it. Never heard of it. Again, it goes back to your audience and what you hope to accomplish. Um, we are living, according to many people that I respect, you probably know them, uh, uh, giving podcasts and YouTubes and everything, what might be called a postmodern world, mm-hmm. where, where, where truth is not valued. Now, one could say facts don't care about your feelings. That's right. But equally true, feelings don't care about your facts. That's true, too. And we have to live and engage in that kind of environment. So I I do think that to become more educated, particularly in in rhetoric, which I, uh, I consider that if I have any insight, any wisdom, any expertise, that would be it, um, on how to analyze and deconstruct argument and to mm-hmm. teach other people, sure. including, I mean, I've done this with children. I mean, young hunters, 10 years old, 11 years old, 12 years old. And they say, oh, I understand that. That makes me feel better because mm-hmm. now I know what to say. Mm-hmm. Let's take the, the concept, the concept of trophy hunting. Okay. I've written many articles about it. I've lectured extensively on that phrase, trophy hunting. And it's in detail in, in my book, The Honorable Hunter. Um, but let's go over it in terms of being gentlemanly and so forth. I, I like to analyze the arguments. And here is, in part, not the totality, my analysis of trophy hunting. And, and m- m- my analysis is that, to, uh, to, is that trophy hunting has m- many layers. It's like, uh, Absolutely. It, it's like uh, um, the, the, the ogre, uh, Shrek, he said, ogres have layers. Well, arguments have layers. And and uh, a trophy hunting has a factual component, uh, has an economic component, has a rhetorical component, 
It has a moral component, an emotional component, a logic component in terms of uh, consequences. Mm-hmm. It's complicated. Mm-hmm. And, and, and if we fail to understand that it's complicated, we're going to lose. Yep. And we will have a, 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 a what you indicated, a, a public relations problem. Let me ask you a question. Sure. And, and, and uh, I'm not delving into your personal life. Please don't think I'm intrusive. But do you ever brush your teeth? Twice you a do. day. Twice a day at least. And probably most of the people in your audience brush their teeth every now and then. I would good imagine. Good assumption, yep. I would imagine. The question is why. This hit me late at night. I was writing an article. And this analogy hit me like a hammer. Boom. Why do we brush our teeth? We brush our teeth because we value them. Correct. And the most fundamental law of all fundamental laws of human behavior is we protect and conserve what we value and we discard what we do not value. And I saw the link between brushing my teeth and hunting. Hunting. How could it be otherwise, Robbie? How could, how could it be otherwise, my friend? How is it possible? If you give animals value, they will be protected. If you take away their value, then they will be slaughtered with bans on hunting, bans on airline imports, bans on bringing a a, a trophy, whatever amount, into Connecticut or California, um, bans on ivory, bans on elephant ivory, bans on uh, black rhino ivory, a horn. If it's given no value, they'll be destroyed except. The value really never dissipates. It just goes to another population. And that population will support the poachers, the killers. How could it, how, how could it be otherwise? It's the most mm-hmm. fundamental law of human nature. Mm-hmm. And that argument isn't made. Now, they, in, no, no, I, I take that back. The argument about giving value is made, but it yep. can be made, I think, more powerfully but again again the the trophy hunting concept is is very layered it has multiple dimensions to it so for example for example the the top layer is what you just described is the value layer well yes yes i think that's that's the most immediate that's the most powerful uh i mean when people talk about trophies, I mean, hunters often talk about trophies in a very linear way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it preserves my memories. It uh, Every time I look on the wall, uh, you know, it brings back all those wonderful moments, the danger, the excitement. Of course, in all fairness, I remember a comment from, uh, I think it was Whoopi Goldberg. I mean, you got to give credit where credit's due. She was asking a hunter on a a TV show or something, you know, why do you hunt? Well, I I put it on the wall because it's beautiful. And she quipped back, well, I think my mother is beautiful too, but there's a limit, you know? So true, true. So you give credit where credit is due, but let's, let's analyze. Let's analyze the phrase trophy hunting. And 
I mean, language is supposed to convey meaning. Language is supposed to be clarifying. Mm-hmm. Um, it is to convey information. But the, 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 the attack against trophy hunting befuddles all that. It confuses that. It changes the goalpost. It changes the argument. And it is really just an exercise of power. It's purely intimidation. The fact is it's totalitarian. And I use that word cautiously, not mm-hmm. loosely, not flippantly. But let's look at trophy hunting. Number one, number one, it has no meaning. It's like tofu. You can make anything you want out of it. Um, it is vague. And because it is vague, it has power. Mm-hmm. Because it can be abused and insulted and uh, right. used as by anybody. And unless you have the skill to fight back, you're going to lose. You're going to mm-hmm. be embarrassed. You're going to be intimidated. You're going to be humiliated. In, in other words, the very vacuity of the phrase gives it power. Right. Any tyrant can use the word and think that he or she is saying something important. Right. But but they believe intensely in something they know nothing about. But that's human nature. Yep. So we have to deal with human nature. Absolutely. Not as we wish uh, as we wish humans would be. So another aspect of of the trophy hunting and I came up with this, and I, frankly, I tell you, Robbie, I'm amazed that I that I did it, and no one else did it. But the concept of trophy hunting relies on the intent rather than the consequences of the hunt. One thousand percent. It's all in the action, all in it, the motivation. It and and the fact is, and again, I say this cautiously, Robbie. Good intentions are morally meaningless. Meaningless. Intentions are morally meaningless. What matters are the consequences. If you are sincere, you say, well, this person that works for uh, this, uh, uh, this uh, anti-hunting group, born free or whatever, is really sincere about his, her, their beliefs, my response is, Sincerity is morally meaningless. Something evil does not become something good just because someone believes it sincerely. Ask the people who flew the jets into the Twin Towers on Mm 9-11. Sincerity Mm -hmm. is morally meaningless. Mm -hmm. The intensity of... I deeply believe, he deeply believes it is morally meaningless. Feeling, believing something deeply does not transform evil into something good. I'm sorry. Tolerance, one of my favorite abusive words. Tolerance is not a virtue. Not at all. Many things should never be tolerated. Mm -hmm. 
and tolerance can become indifference, and then indifference becomes aiding and abetting. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be a survivor of Auschwitz-Birkenau like Eli Weissel to know that tolerance always favors the aggressor, never the victim. Tolerance play into trophy hunting. Well, well, you have a situation where some in the hunting community say, you ought to just accept us because this is what we believe. Or you should be, you know, you should be tolerant of us. And it's, and, and my, my objection is that it's a sloppy use of the word. Mm-hmm. We should focus again on, on the consequences. Yes. Now, for example, Robbie, every, every attack that I have heard, I shouldn't say, almost every attack on trophy hunting, again, that's the phrase, trophy hunting, that I have heard is, well, you don't eat the meat. You shoot the lion, you shoot the elephant, you shoot the hippo, fill in the blank. You don't eat the meat. Right. And so, therefore, you are immoral. Well, the fact is, someone else eats it. Maybe uh, Walter Palmer wasn't going to eat the lion, and maybe the elephant hunter doesn't eat the elephant, but that that meat is donated to villages. Mm-hmm. An elephant can feed a, a large village for, for two, three weeks. A hippo can do that. So why, what moral principle, I ask you, Robbie, I ask your audience, what moral principle determines that killing the animal by me is immoral if I don't eat the meat, but other people do? Where is the immorality? Why is that unethical? And, and furthermore, what is the moral legitimacy of focusing on eating the meat? Let's say you didn't. Let's say you didn't eat the meat. Let's say Walter Palmer's lion was not eaten by human beings. It still generated fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty thousand dollars for re- for 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 uh, anti poaching, for community services, and so forth. Why? I guess what I'm in part, Robbie. What I'm saying is, the hunting community has been seduced and abandoned thinking to allow the anti-hunters to control the narrative. They control the framework. And we have to take that power away. We have to say that. It's funny you say that, Mike. And I've, I've, I've said a lot of the times, the, the saving, to save hunting, all we need to do is think. A thought process couched that mainly from a social media perspective and thinking about what you post, thinking about how you post it. Of course. Thinking about the context behind what you post. The information that someone who comes to it absolutely out of left field, who has no idea what you're doing, gets an idea. But to your point, there's an an added layer here of thinking. Thinking on rhetoric tied to an argument and and an argument from a discussion perspective not an argument in terms of a yelling match no no yelling in terms of a discussion yeah exactly 
but but the framing the issue is is vital. That is to say, Robbie, reframing the issue. If we're going to talk to people, let's say using the black rhinoceros auction as an example, if we're going to talk and get caught in killing the, the any killing killing any animal is bad. It's immoral. It's barbaric. If we're going to begin to discuss, argue, whatever verb you want to use, then we're going to lose. But if we frame it in terms of morality, if we frame it in terms of consequences, if we frame it in terms of helping human beings and cleaner water and anti-poaching, if we reframe that, then, Robbie, what we are doing, and this is so important, what we are doing is arguing on our terms. Mm-hmm. We control the argument. We have taken control and this and 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 determine the definitions. You know what uh, George Orwell said: he he co- who controls the argument wins. He controls the definitions, controls the argument. He con- who controls the argument wins. End of sentence. Goodbye. Go home. Take a nap. That's the end of it. Um, I I would like the hunting community to understand that, and that's what I wrote. I, I think persuasively in 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 the, the book. There's another aspect of this, and, and and this is I think a little more difficult to grasp. I think it is, but I share it. I hope it has value to you. I certainly hope it has value to the audience. The hunting community pervasively uses the phrase, the anti-hunters are ignorant. The anti-hunters don't know the facts. The anti-hunters are unaware. Mm -hmm. This is a delusion. This is a fallacy. This is absolutely false, particularly at the high end of the the orchestrated, the organized anti-hunting, the the multi-million dollar uh, NGOs and uh, multi-million dollar born free and and these other entities. They're not ignorant. They actually know everything that you are about to tell them. They just frame their argument to make it look like they're ignorant. Well, yes, I agree with that. They know what we know. And for the hunting community to ascribe ignorance to them is to let them off the hook. It exonerates them. And then we feel compelled to teach them. If only you knew what Chris Dorsey knew, what Robbie Kroger knows, what Michael Sabbath knows, what Denise, if only you were as smart as we were. Mm-hmm. and is informed, then you would all agree with me. But it's false. Yeah. It's false. It is not their nature, and they don't care. Now, it's very difficult for decent people to grasp that there are others who do not care. They don't care. Now, they may not care for very specific reasons. One, they're making a ton of money. That's one reason for not caring. Number two, they may have a personality disorder. I was researching a couple of years ago for one of my speeches and reading a book called Cold 
blooded kindness by a brilliant writer, brilliant researcher, Barbara Oakley. I remember it vividly. And in that book, she quoted the great um, uh, psychotherapist Carl Gustav Jung. And this sentence just got embedded in my brain. And I've used, it's in my book, it's in my speeches, and here's what Carl Gustav Jung said. He said, all addictions are dangerous, whether it's drugs, narcotics, or idealism. What do you think of that, Robbie? Idealism is an addiction. And if people are committed, addictive to an abstraction, if their moral structure requires this delusion, the need to feel morally smug. Think of that lady I described mm-hmm. wearing the I am Cecil. Mm-hmm. That person has got to be mentally ill. How do you, let's use her as an example. And, and, I, and I'm thinking a lady like that, probably the people that we engage in in social media. Yeah. Believe, and maybe this is me being delusional. I cannot believe that they do know what we know. Well, fair, fair enough. But then, right? If we, if you're almost like there is no way that this person understands my argument, I can understand born free and the CEOs of Humane Society and Peter and whatnot knowing it, right? Yes. On the ground, don't. Yes, and that's why I say. Don't ascribe to them ignorance as if they would automatically believe what you believe if they were informed. But to your point, Robbie, recall what I did say earlier in the context of speaking to that lovely surgeon from Poland. Here's an anti-hunter. Find the common ground. Be gracious. Be informed, be mm-hmm. persuasive, and I do believe that the great majority would come around and would agree. I believe that. So yep. to that extent, I make a, a modification. But it is dangerous, I think, to believe that if only other people knew what I know, what you know, what Chris Dorsey, fill in the blank that they would automatically agree with us. True. No, that's absolutely true. And, 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 and it's important because that reality will help us craft better arguments. It'll help us be more persuasive. Mm-hmm. If we think, why, here, read this. Show how hunting has increased the rhino population, the leopard population, the markhor population. The bison, take a look. There's more turkey, more deer more, than ever in the United States in the last 200 million years. Take a look. And they say, oh, I, you persuaded me. That's just not going to happen. <laughs> no, you're right. You're absolutely right. It, it, it's about framing your argument in the right way. And you actually used a better term than gentlemanly. Uh, but I think they're synonymous, which is with okay. a bit of grace and gracious, being gracious in your arguments. I think as a general proposition, one should always be gracious. 
one should always listen to an opponent. Certainly a good trial lawyer knows that, mm-hmm. especially on a cross-examination. The, 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 the more inept lawyers are not listening. They're already thinking about their next question. And by not listening, they're missing mm-hmm. very critical information. Mm-hmm. So I believe in absolutely, I agree with you, being gracious, being gentlemanly, ladylike, respectful, certainly being respectful until someone demonstrates that he or she does not deserve your respect. I would not be respectful to somebody who was disrespectful to me. That doesn't mean I get into a fighting, a yelling, screaming match. I would try to sit back very, very calmly, weather the storm, and then try to shame and mock and humiliate and uh, demean them. That's mm-hmm. what I would do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but again, that requires a certain acrobatic agility in how to handle discussions, how to handle arguments. And that's what I try to show in the book. And that's what I try to show in my lectures. I just gave a lecture, I think it was about two months ago, down in in Texas, Palestine, Texas. I went to Palestine. Um, And one of the lectures was about Deneen, our friend Deneen van der Westhuizen, and her interview by that woman at the British Broadcasting, uh, Emma Barnett from the BBC. Maybe you're familiar with the interview. Where, I don't think so. Well, you should read. You should read my uh, the article on my website. Okay. Um, where Emma was ruthless, subverted Deneen, caught her off guard, misrepresented what Deneen had been saying or had said, it was a completely, thoroughly insulting. And, and, and Deneen, of course, acted with great grace. And Deneen held up her end. And she was marvelous. But there are not a lot of Deneens around. Mm-hmm. Um, but here is an instance where a person happens to be a friend of mine. That's why I wrote the article. Because Deneen is a friend. I wanted to honor her. And Deneen and I gave a, a, a co-presentation at the uh, Dallas Safari Club in last year. She and I did a co-presentation on that media exchange. Um, and that that's an example of how one can respond when somebody is disrespectful to you. And I gave that that lecture, and, and, and to the these were to uh, hunter ed instructors and state administrators uh, in the state of Texas. And I said, "Let us identify the rhetorical tricks, the rhetorical abuses, logical fallacies, straw man arguments, false analogy, uh, diverting, changing topics, ignoring facts." I mean, it's complicated, Robbie. Mm-hmm. None of none of this is easy. Mm-hmm. None of it is easy. And certainly, and I, I say this with 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 without arrogance. I say it with humility. It's taken me a long time to learn sure. what I've learned. Yep. I tried to put the highlights in this book, 
I have another book already I'm writing. Good. Um, but uh, I think that, uh, you know, the audience, it might, be, it might be helpful. I don't know what's helpful really, but it might be to, to, to understand that there are nuances to this. There, there are truly things to be learned. It's not all emotional. It's not just saying you don't understand. Uh, you, you're, you're a bad person for, for opposing hunting. Uh, because those are not very effective. Those are not persuasive responses. Right. There, there are techniques to all of this. Um, you don't have to end up being a, a, a super-duper trial lawyer type guy or woman to use them, but a few little little grace notes here and there, Robbie, here and there. Absolutely. You know, just, just to sharpen you up. Exactly. And that's what we call them, you know, seeds, little facts that you just bury in the back of your brain. Yes. Um, yes. No, Mike, you are absolutely correct. And we are normally, we, we are way over our time, but it is an amazing conversation that I wanted to just let go. The book that you keep referring to, the Honorable Hunter Instructor Training Manual, How to Honorably and Persuasively Defend and Promote Hunting. Michael, where can they buy your book? Where can they get your book? Uh, th thank you very much, Robbie, for that. Uh, truly, truly appreciative. Uh, it's available on Amazon uh, in in uh, the physical book. It's available on Amazon as an e-book, an electric, electronic book, and I think it's also available on on a, a, a Nook and other formats from uh, competing uh, platforms. Fantastic. Yeah. So. Get a million of them. They're great, <laughs> great, it. great. What, what's the phrase? Great the docking stuffers. <laughs> there we go. Good. Well, Michael, I've, I honestly had, and I'll be completely honest with you. I had no idea what I was getting myself into with a conversation with you. I loved your book. I'm going to continue to read it. Um, but my head is spinning beyond belief, and. I think that this is going to be the first of multiple morality conversations that we host on this podcast between you and I. It would and be I my pleasure. Wait. It would be my pleasure. And I don't mind saying that I became aware of your existence through a few people that I admire greatly, including Chris Dorsey, who's been a friend of mine for more than 20 years. And um, he has the highest regard for you. Thank and you, I sir. said, Chris, uh, he, said, he said to me, he said, Michael, I'll put you in touch with Robbie. I said, good, because if, if he has your blessing, then it's good enough for me. It was that simple. Well, I appreciate that, Michael. And uh, yeah, I can't wait for the next one. I think that people are going to thoroughly enjoy this one. And we'll do part two, part three part however many we need to take because i think rhetoric is something we continually learn as you are a student of we're all students of it um but we have to continue to refine our craft and these yes. types of conversations allow us to refine that that is a beautiful phrase and i'm not trying to be fawning refine <laughs> refine the craft that's what we need to do and even little kids want to do it they want to be stronger. They want to be better. They want to be competent. 
And if hunting can do that for them, they will support hunting for their entire lives. And for the rest of us, a little bit older than 12 and 13, um, we can defend it, we can protect it, we can promote it, and, and help it survive. Well said. Thank okay. you, Mike. Thank you, Robbie. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.